but I do think there's a, there is a through line of sort of the creator the creator piece of this. I think the the stock and trade of Medium over the years has kind of has always been a blogger or a group of people writing together on a on a particular topic. So I think getting back to being very focused on that feels like a, a good direction. Welcome back to Meaty Voices, everybody. The last episode of Meaty Voices. Until the summer. Not Until ever. the summer. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I forgot. I forgot. Uh, I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from my interview with Scott Lamb, VP Content and Medium. We spoke about his role, Medium's famous pivots, but how creators have always been at the core of what Medium's been about. We spoke about competing with Substack, and we actually spoke on the on Ev Williams' last day. Uh, so we spoke about his departure. Good, fantastic. But even though we are going on hiatus until September, Esther, there is so much going on in terms of the Publisher Podcast Summit, isn't there? Yes, there is. Uh, we've got we're going to be releasing speakers over the coming weeks and the agenda. Um, so. If you want to join us there, please do join us. It's going to be great. Um, you can use the code POD20 for 20% off tickets over at publisherpodcastsummit.com. Ahead of that, though, and ahead of us going on our break, we're going to be talking about quite a sad story because uh, we're going to be talking about Mel Magazine, which has been closed again only a year after it was closed for the first time. The entire editorial staff of Mel Magazine, which is around 15 people, including its editor-in-chief, Josh Schollmeyer, has been laid off just before the weekend um, by Recurrent Ventures, which at the time of acquisition said that it was effectively going all in on working with Mel to deliver uh, a unique and bold take on men's issues. Well, it's the same old story, isn't it? It just didn't make sense, either financially or... I, I think if you look at... I spoke to Lance Johnson about couple of weeks ago or actually maybe a month ago one of the things we talked about was how recurrent hadn't actually laid people off uh, and now they have so, mm. so that's their first they've broken the seal on that one it's, it's, they said it's the first time they've actually completely closed a brand well and then this is partly what I'm thinking I was surprised at this as I said but I think partly if you look at their other brands Mel just maybe didn't fit yeah well, but they, they have, they do have other digital focus brands. In fact, they, for a while, they were sort of on an acquisition spree. Yeah, but the stuff doesn't really seem. This doesn't seem to be lifestyle focused the way Mel is. It seems to be more specialist, like you know DIY and food and I know, they've got this cars and military thing, which I could never quite get my head around. But I guess it's America, so it's um, just too, it was too broad. Yeah, I think maybe that's that's what's going on here. It just didn't quite fit. But I, you know, I haven't a clue. This only happened what Friday. Yeah. Well, um, Mark Stenberg seems to have kind of got a lot of the goss on it for Adweek. Um, he says that apparently uh, Mel were told that they had eighteen to twenty-four months to turn a profit when they were acquired 12 months ago. Um, so I think a lot of them were definitely not expecting the timing of this. But mm. um, yeah, some, uh, somebody said that they'd, um, they'd spent more than a year implementing and strategizing a variety of different monetization channels that haven't gained traction. And they said, at this stage, we've invested more into the business than we committed to because we wanted this to succeed. And yeah, they just said they just, they just want to evolve away from the lifestyle vertical into other core verticals. But it doesn't... A year really isn't a long time when you've got things mm -hmm. like, especially when you, you've acquired a brand, like you've got all the integration, you've got settling in, you've got all the, like, surely it's going to take six months just to kind of figure out 
what the best way to monetize is. And they just, this does seem a bit early to have canned it. So uh, when they actually got acquired by Recurrent, this is after Dollar Shave Club had dropped them as a, mm. as a partner. Um, Schollmeyer said that he, you know, hoped that they were going to leverage Recurrent's tech to help introduce affiliate marketing and programmatic advertising. Programmatic advertising, you know, talk, talk what you want about that. There's been such a pullback in terms of ad spend, particularly around lifestyle brands over the last couple of weeks. But why, Peter, is, is that affiliate revenue sort of like, that lack of affiliate revenue there, do you think that is coming from the fact that it wasn't specialised? Because it was a trusted brand, but maybe not for recommendations. Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of the issue. If you look at these other brands that I was talking about, you know, the affiliate revenue on them has got to be really solid because it's stuff, right? Mm. But it, it takes time to build that reputation. One of the big questions I had on this is that when, when Dollar Shave Club kind of sacked it off, they said that Josh and a couple of others could take it and find a buyer for it. Mm. Um, so I think it, it was sort of dormant, well, it was dormant for three months before um, before Josh said that he'd carefully chosen Recurrent as a partner. Mm. So I don't know whether are Recurrent going to let them go and look somewhere else, or is this very much like no, this is this is like the you final nail in the coffin for it. I guess if the brand's not making any money, then they don't care, would do they? This, that, I mean, there's sort of a, yeah, I mean, I guess there's sort of a, a crossover here with what's happening with Quartz, which has similarly been passed around from mm. owner to owner, never quite found its footing in terms of alignment with, you know, the parent company's goals. But in terms of recurrent, you would have thought, because they've got what, like, like you said, outdoor life, field and stream, better you, interesting things, you know, they acquired all these, popular science had acquired. So it's got 16 digital brands. It just seems to me that if you inherit an audience like Mel had and you can't make that work, that says more about the digital publishing landscape than it does about the people who work at Mel or that Or does it say something current. about VC funding and the, the speed at which they expect those returns? No, which which Lance really... was quite careful to deny last, last when we yeah, spoke to him. That's not recurrent. That's not their model. Okay, so maybe they've exposed themselves here as that is their model, but I don't think so. I don't get that sense at all. I think mm. this just didn't fit. Uh, you know, Mel's, are, Mel's out there as a brand. Uh, these guys... These guys weren't taking any prisoners when it came to writing really edgy, edgy stuff. Uh, and and that was that's why it's loved, right? That's why people care about it. But does that fit in the same portfolio as popular science, a 150-year-old science magazine? Mm. Which, you know what I mean? Yeah, or a, or a DIY bit. magazines, or I don't know. I really don't. This this reminds me. Do you remember this was years and years ago? Do you remember Gadget? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That that similarly had that thing where it was shopping itself around, and it never quite f- seemed to fit in with anybody's portfolios. Even though it was a fantastic product in and of its own right, it just didn't have the, I suppose, the revenue base to support itself. As oh, a future, future would totally buy them now. That, see, that's the that's the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a matter of timing. And if recurrent this time a year ago thought that they had that it was that's a good inter- fit, it's, but it's interesting that you're saying future would buy them now because I don't think future would buy Mel. So there's no. something in that brand, right? No, but but if, I mean, if you, uh, in terms of gadget, uh, gadget um, future have got like quite a big tech portfolio that built out, whereas lifestyle they're not quite so. Yeah, so, yeah that's, that, that generic lifestyle they're not quite so big on they're, they're all in, in on the niche what I'd love is to be proved completely wrong and next week there's an announcement that Future just bought Mel <laughs> that would be brilliant 
It's it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's it's a really, really fantastic magazine in a lot of ways. But then you do look at some of the content and go, well, how does this fit in with a wider, say, an <laughs> no, e-commerce strategy? If I'm looking here and it's like the top four stories that are looking at, the USA mullet champ is winning at everything else <laughs> in life too, our eternal horniness for the camp counsellor. Well, they, spe- they, they specifically did kind of brand content. Well, that's mm. where they came from, right? They came from mm. Dollar Shave, and that, that was brand content they were doing. And they had that, I mean, I don't know, do we call it native advertising anymore? But they had that sort of, that kind of commercial content going on, but not enough of it. Mm. Because initially they didn't need it, right? So now all of a sudden it's like, well, you pivot <laughs> into programmatic, and e-commerce affiliate recommendations, like Esther said, that that doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, can I think? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember where I read it that um, a lot of digital media properties need a runway of about five years before they can yeah, plan yeah. to turn a profit. I know Axios were saying that they was their outlook was similar, wasn't and they've only someone, really they've only really had Axios. a year to to do this. Wasn't that someone looking at Media Voices and saying, "Oh, you've been going for five years. You need a five year runway." <laughs> <laughs> Um, I suppose it'll, it'll be interesting to see, will they get a chance with another buyer or is this kind of it mm. for him now? It's yeah, I wonder if they could do like of, a... Um, it's a big audience. I wonder if they could do a defector type thing. The, you know, the... Uh, mm, buyer? Well, not yeah, buyer, yeah. but a sort of collective takeover type thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting. Well, you know, I feel like we talk about pre-recording some sections of the podcast, like the the intro, outro type deal. But I think we need to pre-record a sort of our thoughts go out to everyone who's affected by this because it happens so regularly. Uh, it should be like that thing in uh, the Hunger Games where it's like the cannon goes, it goes <laughs> and then like there's a the music plays and then, and this holographic image of the f- final cover sort of yeah. in the sky. I was just thinking it's been ages since the brand shut down. <laughs> There has been a bit of a lull, but what we've also seen is an equivalent lack of launches. Yeah, Remember that, that Mr. Magazines just did that? Yeah, Mr. Magazines himself just did a, a fascinating look at how many new magazine titles have hit the UK newsstand over the past, what was it, six months? Mm. Uh, no, it was, he does it quarterly, I think. Quarterly, and it was, it was 12, of which two of them were kind of just reskins of US content. Mm. So we're seeing fewer brands maybe shut down, but we're also seeing fewer brands launch into the market. So we have pitched a media. <laughs> we have pitched a dating service for billionaires mm. looking to find magazine brands to take over. But we're now we're also pitching the magazine brand Hunger Games. Oh, that could be real. I think Mel would kick ass in that. <laughs> I would want to go up against them. Jesus. And moving on to the news and brief, and there is an excellent and relevant post here on Substack. I should add from Simon Owens, who's taking a look at what happened with Medium. Uh, so the blogging platform, which despite being the biggest disruptor in media for quite some time, I would say, never delivered upon its promise. And so while the site itself isn't dead, its founder, Ed Williams, did just announce he's stepping down as CEO. Um, obviously, it's hard to deliver upon a promise as big as reimagining the creator economy in favor of the creator, much less in a way that benefits journalists as well. Uh, so Ernst does a really good post-mortem on what happened. So hopefully, fingers crossed, the next disruptor won't make the same mistakes as Medium. And obviously, Peter, that is incredibly relevant to your interview this week. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we we, we spoke to. <laughs> we, we we left it to the end of the interview, to be honest, to talk about uh, Ed Williams' departure. But you know what? We're interviewing people. We don't start slagging them off. That's not who we are. We ask them what they've learned from the processes that they've gone through and whatever. So I'm not going in and saying, you know, mediums, what's going on with medium? It's, it's f***ed or whatever, because it's, <laughs> I don't think it is. Yeah. But 
someone like Simon, absolutely that is their job. And Casey Newton did a pretty solid job on, on this as well. Moving on to a much more positive story than anything we've spoken about so far. Peter, what is your nib? Cardi made a group. Dun, dun, dun. It's recorded its strongest financial results. <laughs> you should try and do a jingle for Guardian Media yeah. Group. Dun, dun, dun. It's recorded its strongest financial results in 14 years, and that's brilliant news, mm-hmm. I think. We're, you know, we're, we're not getting into the politics of this, but they're a favourite kind of broadsheet type publication, and their revenues are up 13% to £255 million online readers. You ready for that? Yeah, this is fa- this is really fascinating. This, but they contribute more money than readers to the print, and that's been what they've been working to. And when you add in digital advertising and other stuff from events and masterclasses and all the stuff that they do, um, it's more than two thirds of their group's income is from online operations. Now that that wasn't like that a few years ago. No. Um, so that's a major transformation with an open journalism. Yeah, exactly. The focus as well. Okay, all I say to this is no, Esther. No, 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 no. We were having such a good time just because you've been hoarding, <laughs> coming back. All it took the Guardian fourteen years. I think this should have given Mel longer than twelve months. <laughs> that five-year well, runway. Okay, but yeah. there's a reason for that. Thank you, Esther. That's a really nice segue. <laughs> the Guardian, as we all know, has maintained its independence through a subsidy from the Scott Trust. You know, the money that's kept the Guardian going over those 14 years comes from that trust rather from, well, if they needed it, came from the trust rather than from commercial operations. Mel doesn't have that. And I think what's the other thing that's really nice about the, this story for the Guardian is that for the first time in ages, they've actually, rather than drawing down on that fund, they've put money back in. There's a cash mm-hmm. surplus of almost seven million pounds. So I remember, you remember discussing how long the Guardian had if it was just kept taking money out of the fund. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, well, it, it, for a while it was burning like 50 yeah. million in cash. Yeah. So this is a great story. I love it. A, an undeniable good news story. Ta-da. And now I start onto a weird news story. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? <laughs> so... Who I've are you? Ho- You're not Esther. <laughs> Esther would never put this kind of story in. Um, I've been on holiday this week, um, and I basically I haven't really kept up with what's going on. But when I looked in Pocket, I don't know who mm. saved this mm. to Pocket, which is our shared like our well, I'm a, repository. Well, I'm a comic book reader, and which this, this leapt out to me. Okay, well, this leapt out at me as well for multiple reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's apparently been a 300% increase in boob size on comic book cover art. Mm-hmm, mm. Um, busts now consume more than triple the cover space and shows twice <laughs> the amount of cleavage compared to comics from the mid-20th century. Oh, um Interestingly, percentage of cover and percentage of cleavage peaked in the 2010s, but it looks like pressure to normalise the look of female characters is starting to come into play as both metrics have begun to recede. Mm. Does anybody yeah. have any comment? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so, hold on. Yeah. Does that mean that now... <laughs> does that mean now that comic book breast art... Yes has normalized compared with the 2010. Could we could we attribute this to a influx of women readers, women artists, women writers potentially? Could we attribute that to the need to be brand safe in an age when comic book movies are so mm, valuable to the, the these companies bottom lines potentially? 
Yeah, do, do we expect this to go back up? Yeah. 30% is an awful lot of cover to take up. Yeah, here's the, here's, the, here's the real question about this. Is the, there something the newspaper industry can learn from this? Well, I'm now really regretting <laughs> putting this in. Well, I was just going to say, this reminds me of my favourite ever go on. Media Voices moment. What was that? When we were talking about page three and I said to you, Chris, I've got two words for you. Breasts. <laughs> Esther, can I make a suggestion for the podcast icon this <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> well, before we move on to the guest intro for this week, we do want to remind you that there are a number of ways you can support Media Voices if you so choose. You can either head across to voices.media/support, which will take you through to our Ko-Fi page, where you can donate either on a one-off or on a recurring basis. Regular. <laughs> and while you're on voices.media please do sign up to our newsletter Peter and Chris have been keeping it going very admirably this week but I will be back in that will not be taking a break that will be keeping going all summer because we oh, are not really? allowed a real break <laughs> really? because we are yeah, oh, <laughs> no the media news happens every day so that's where we choose the top four stories every day for you so that you don't have to comb through hundreds of other newsletters uh, you can sign up to that voices.media and um, there's a lovely little pop-up where you can put your email address in. This week I spoke with Scott Lamb, VP Content and Medium. We spoke about pivots, creators, Substack, Kev Williams' departure and I think the most interesting thing, why Tony Stubblebine is the right man to be taken over. But first, I asked Scott about his role at Medium. My my role at Medium is in the, the vice president of content, but what that means for Medium, I can go into a little bit more detail. You know, uh, when I when I joined the company a couple of years ago, we were focused at that point on building a, uh, a number of in-house magazines, more or less. We had an editorial strategy that was really focused on um, on building our own editorial brands and sort of creating a lot of original content that was you know that was owned by medium um, but we've we've shifted focus over the last uh, you know, almost almost exactly a little over a year ago um, to kind of come back to what we call core medium which is really more about being a platform that allows other people to to write so for the content team as it stands currently what that means is you know, we support authors and writers on Medium. We have a, a publication called Creators Hub that you know gives people writing tips, etc. Um, we have a newsletter for all of our creators about how to use Medium effectively and highlight great writing on the platform that people can sort of emulate and, and learn from other writers. Um, we also spend a lot of time working directly with with writers, uh, reaching out to people to encourage them to come onto the platform. Um, you know, highlighting stories that we think are 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 great and are worth people knowing about, and you know, we don't we don't have a fire hose that we can sort of direct. We're not we don't own the algorithm on on Medium. You know, every user on Medium kind of gets the stories that they get recommended based on their reading history. But we do have some places that we can highlight them. We have a, a weekly email that we put together. We have a couple of slots in the product in a couple of places where we can we can highlight stories that we think are good. The sort of the teams that I work with are the creator relations team, which does support and, and outreach to, to writers, the curation team, um, which is the, the team that's looking for good stories and, and trying to highlight them on the platform. Um, I work a little bit with a marketing team as well, but really our goal is, you know, we think about content at Medium, it's not really 
separate from the product. We are, you know, we are primarily a technology company. Um, but what most people experience on Medium is the work, the, the stuff that they're writing. Um, so our goal is to just try and continually improve that, help the writers who are on Medium get better at what they do, make it easier for them to succeed, um, and to to kind of go out into the world and try and find more people to come on and, and use the platform. I'm interested in that idea of you highlighting or surfacing good content. What What's the process? How do you decide what's good and what's <laughs> maybe not so good? It's a really, it's, it's a sort of continually evolving process. And I think, you know, one of the things that's been really tough over the years is whenever you get into, whenever you get into curation, um, you are relying on taste, like editorial taste and a human's judgment at some point. And I think that can be both good and bad. It allows us to not, I think, fall into the trap of just having a platform that's driven entirely by the things that are getting the highest click-through rates or, you know, kind of whatever metrics the algorithm looks at for, for success. Um, and I think that's really important. I think we, we don't want to be just another sort of click-driven or metric-driven platform. Um, but it's also limiting. You can't, we can't see everything. And even if we did see everything, you know, I might enjoy a story that you think is is not so, yeah. not worth, worthy of, of people's highlighting. Um, so we, ha- we have, we've evolved a couple of different approaches to this over the years, but I think the one that we're, that we're most interested in right now, one of the, one of the key sort of signals that we look for when we're evaluating someone's piece of, of writing? Is it, is it worthy of, you know, kind of getting highlighted or, or getting some extra attention? Is about the author. Are they an expert? Do they have a point of view on on what they're saying and, and knowledge to share? I think the kind of core of what Medium is about, at least ideally for us, is subject matter experts, people who have a, actually have knowledge uh, on the topic that they're writing about, um, to share and, you know, not so much opinion-based stuff, not so much, um, you know, there's a lot of different types of writing. There's poetry on Medium, there's personal essays, yeah. but the sort of stock and trade is people writing about a corner of the world that they know very well, be it data science or the logistics of trucking. Um, and that is the kind of thing that we look for um, as, as being something worth highlighting. I mean, that was always the, so Medium is almost 10 years old. Yeah. That was always the idea was to highlight or surface or create a space, I guess, for quality content versus quantity and versus you know, speed and whatever else drives the internet. Yeah. The idea that, you know, when you, when you joined, publications owned by Medium were a really big deal. I get that you backed away from that, but what did you learn from that process that you could then take with the creators, take directly to creators? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think we we learned we learned a lot about how how difficult distribution is. Mm-hmm. You know that that ultimately is the thing that is the limiting factor for for growth of a writer or a publication on medium and and on the internet at large. Um, I think w- one of the things that was really difficult was in that process is we we certainly wanted to support the investment that we were making in those publications. We didn't also want to totally tip the scales in their their favor. And this was actually a bit of an issue with the writer, the existing writing community on medium is that when we we launched these publications, um, people felt rightly or wrongly that the the public Applications we were launching were were being given a, a great advantage and oh, were appearing sure. much more in their in their feeds. And we realized there was a real you know there was a a limit to to the sort of push that we could give them, and b that it's really difficult to uh, <laughs> it's really difficult to create 
new media brands um, on <laughs> online. I mean, and this is a thing. I don't know. This is a thing I, I've known. I've I've been in the industry for for a while. Um, but I think we we really kind of reached the limit of of the the I don't know the push that we could give them and at the same time what we were seeing and this is true not just a medium this is this is certainly sort of an industry-wide trend was a, a shift away from institutions and away from brands towards individuals and I think social media has obviously played a huge role in that dynamic I think substack and the growth of substack as sort of a, as a publishing venue for individuals um, helped that as well. And so, you know, we we also in in Medium's product were making a lot of product changes towards individuals rather than um, the the notion that you follow a, a writer, maybe a publication as well. But a lot of our, our our work was very focused on the individual writer. And so, I think that's sort of shifted our thinking to say, well, we rather than trying to create you know a, a portfolio of media brands that we own, let's let's kind of go back to our roots and figure out how we make this a platform that individuals can use themselves. I don't know the numbers. Maybe you can tell me the numbers, but how many individuals are there writing on Medium at the moment? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't actually know the answer offhand. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's that's also tricky about Medium, and I'm, I'm, I'm not being coy, I'm, I'm literally thinking through the dashboards that I have access to <laughs> and where that number might sit. You know, it... it it varies because a lot of people, and we like this use case, a lot of people use a medium very infrequently. I think it's one mm-hmm. of the things that's very different for medium from, say, Substack. Um, you don't need to launch a thing uh, on medium. If you have a, an idea, you have something that you want to write, you can do that very, very sporadically. So we do have, you know, we have we have writers that are writing every day. We have people who come in once or twice a year to, to write something. So the, the number, the kind of current active writer number don't have offhand. So difficult to build a media brand. You've, yeah. you've said that, and I 100% agree with that. <laughs> but if you go out and you find someone, the way Substack has actually, who's already got a brand, you know, someone like Casey Newton or whatever, yeah. and you bring them onto the platform, is that something that you're actively trying to do? We we are, and we've done it in, in sort of different ways. Um you know, when I when I first started at Medium, one of the projects I was working on, we had a um, we had a publication with Mark Bittman, who was a food writer for the New York Times, like a recipe um, writer for the New York Times for many many years, um, and had gone off and was doing his own thing. And you know, he's got a relatively he's got a big profile in this space. He's written a number of books. He's great. Um, and so we wanted to start a food publication with him. And he has a, a reasonably big following. I think the thing that was tricky for Medium is, as opposed to Substack, where you know there's this sort of one-to-one relationship between the author and the audience, and you own a list, and you have you kind of have control over the means of distribution. He was able to send things out on his newsletter um, from Medium, but growing a growing his his sort of base on Medium. It was like anyone else coming to the platform. It, it 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 took time. So I think we've you know we've tried that approach and sort of bringing someone in with a big following didn't necessarily translate immediately to to success on Medium. So we've sort of changed tacks and thought more just about who are writers who we've already got a good sense there's an audience for them on Medium amongst our mm-hmm. our user base, our reader base, or our subscriber base. Um, and so that has, you know, we've leaned a little bit more towards sort of technical topics for that. There's a lot of technical writing on on Medium. Um, you know, the biggest, I think, the biggest single publication on Medium is one called Towards Data Science, and it's, you know, it's a lot of articles, as you would imagine, <laughs> about data science. So we've started sort of moving a little bit away from journalists, um, you know, like like Casey Newton, and more towards. Uh, 
subject matter experts or, or technical writers who are interested in, in AI, in programming, in, in data science. Um, and we've just only been exploring the right way of getting, of creating a set of incentives for them to come and join Medium so that mm. when they look at the options that they have for publishing, that the Medium is a, is a natural choice for them. And the one thing you could say about Medium is that it's never been shy of exploring new ways of doing things. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the, the, the different models have, uh, well, it's kind of legend, doesn't it? Yeah. You, do you think this creator focus is something that will last? I, I do. I mean, in, in the sense that I think that it actually has been kind of a core part of the company before we started talking about it in the language of creators or the creator economy. I mean, I know, I know that phrase has been around for a while and... and um, Medium, though, I think has sort of played in that space for a, a pretty long time. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think what we're what we're trying to get, you know, just focused back on is it's still true that if you want to publish something on the web, you've got options, but it's kind of surprising to me how limited those options <laughs> still are. Um, yeah. If you have something l- lengthy that you want to write and publish, you um, you know, you, there's there's WordPress, there's Ghost, there's there's Substack, there's us. There, there are many other much smaller players, but there's not there's not an unlimited variety um, of those things. And I think we still feel like there's a huge opportunity ahead for for that. That there are a lot more people out there who haven't yet written things online um, that are going to be looking for looking for for tools to use um, so thinking about creators and kind of focusing on that piece I think is, is really key we're also you know you you mentioned mediums many you know people often say pivots I would say there's actually only been a few real pivots in the company's history like the actual business model changing it's really just a maybe two or three but there have been a lot of changes a lot of them have had uh, you know a pretty big impact on the lives either of yeah. medium employees or or sure. um, publications that we brought in. But I do think I've actually have liked the company's willingness to to try those things and then also you know to to commit to them to kind of give them a chance to grow and then if things aren't working to say all right let's 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 shift and, and try something else. But I do think there's a, there is a through line of sort of the creator the creator piece of this i think the the stock and trade of medium over the years has kind of has always been a blogger or a group yeah. of people writing together on a on a particular topic so i think getting back to being very focused on that feels like a, a good direction do those kind of publications you know where where an individual brings together other people do those sort of outperform individual creators no not necessarily and this is this is the, the sort of thing that i think a lot of medium a lot of medium writers sort of wonder about is there, you know, are publications weighted differently in the algorithm? Do they perform differently? Um, I think, you know, as, as a sort of matter of product, no. Um, I think there is a dynamic, though, that's at play when you have a, a group of people working on a project together. There's sure. a lot more people sort of invested and, and doing the work of getting the word out and sharing those stories elsewhere. So there is, I think it's certainly harder um, to grow when it's just you by yourself yeah, sure. and you don't have an audience that you're bringing with you from anywhere else. But in terms of how they perform on the platform, there's, there's really no difference. You mentioned Substack a couple of times. How does Medium compete with Substack? Um, I mean, it's certainly something that we think about a lot. They've, they've, they've had a great growth story over the last couple of years. Um, I think it really changed the space in a way that I think 
and I'm not being Pollyannish about it, but I think it's probably good for us, both in in terms of putting putting some pressure on Medium to to focus, um, but also just really opening up the space. Um, you know, I my my previous role was at BuzzFeed, and I've watched um, over the course of the last couple of years a lot of people leaving BuzzFeed and many other um, institutions as well to kind of start off on their own, yeah. and a lot of them are doing that on on Substack. Um, so I, I think that. You know they've they've kind of created uh, a new a new dynamic in the market, which is really really good. I think Medium is a is a pretty different proposition, and I think we compete with them by kind of leaning into the the places that we're we're, we're different differentiated. You know, part of that is we provide discovery and distribution in a way that Subsect doesn't. And I think you know from what I understand of of kind of reading about their direction, probably won't. It's a little hard to tell with the 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 new, the recent sort of new app that they've they've rolled out, if that's going to change. Um, but they're not really a network right now, and, and Medium is. And part of the thing that we provide for people is good search rankings and the opportunity to participate in the, the Medium network, which just means you can get seen, your work can get seen by people who don't already know who you are. Um, and we know that distribution is a big challenge. So that's, that's, a, yeah. that's a valuable thing. Um, I think also, you know, I mentioned sort of the sporadic, like, uh, not quite contextless, but you don't need to start a publication. You don't need to commit to something that you're going to produce weekly um, or daily or on any sort of cadence to be successful on Medium. And I think newsletters are great. Um, they're also a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, they're they're difficult. I think they're really difficult to maintain over the course of time. Like they're just they're a very specific type of editorial product. And I think one of the things that Medium offers is a, a lot more leeway and freedom for for folks to not. Not to have to commit to doing that, but but again, still being able to to write and get distribution. So I think over the course of time, we're going to you know to compete successfully with them, kind of lean into the differences. You know, over the course of last year, we've worked on some newsletter um, products. They are they are part of Medium's um, package, but in a very really in a really very different way than Substack. In terms of revenue, is the subscription side, the membership side of things, is that the real focus or the other revenue streams that it's really primarily that um the you know medium is a business we've uh, over the course of years have acquired a a couple of other companies some of which have a small revenue component to them but by and large the subscription is the it's our main driver we're talking on the 19th of july (laughs) uh which i believe is ev williams final day yeah at, at medium so some big changes. Yeah, uh, you've been on vacation, so but I guess you've been keeping up with what's going on. How are you feeling about the change? Um, you know, it's it's bittersweet in the sense that uh, you know I've uh, been at the company almost three years. I've been working directly for Ev, um, I guess, since the fall of last year. And for, you know, for me, and I think a lot of people at the company, definitely coming to work for him was part of the draw. Um, you know, he's, he's a really thoughtful, interesting, um, and I think really important figure in the development of the web between uh, Blogger and, and Twitter. Um, I was a big fan of Odeo in sort of the, the brief period that mm-hmm. that was the thing that he was focused on. And you know, as a as a leader and sort of a product visionary, I think it's been it's been really exciting to work for him. Um, at the same time, I'm really excited about Tony Stubblebine, the the new CEO who's coming in. He and I have worked pretty closely together just about the entire time that I've been at Medium. One of the things I've I've worked on is our we have um, a handful of publications that we have partnerships with. Um, one of the things that you can't 
currently do on Medium is if you are a, if you run a publication that you as the editor of that publication can earn revenue in our our partner program right now it's still the 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 share there is for for writers but we have some partnerships where we're supporting publications a couple of those um, are ones that Tony has has worked on so we've just had an opportunity to work together on his um, on his publications and on some other projects as well and you know when when Ev sort of laid out this this plan I was you know I was surprised at first um, but really quickly got very energized about it because I think Tony's coming in with a lot of firsthand knowledge of the platform I mean probably he probably knows more about medium than anyone outside the company um, mm. and he's been a, a partner and advisor and has just really worked closely with Ev for a long time um, they, they worked together first back in in the Odeo days and he's really I don't know. He's he's proven his you know his investment in the platform, his dedication to the platform. But he also is coming into the CEO role with like he deeply understands where the issues are from the perspective of a, a writer or a publisher mm -hmm. on Medium, and has a very clear focus on wanting to solve those and and knowing that our growth is going to be very bound up in getting those solutions right and getting them. I think fairly fairly quickly. So you know it's a big it's a big moment of transition for. For the company, um, it's a big moment of transition for Ev. I'm excited for him and, and kind of what he does next. I think he wants to take some some time off, which I think is well <laughs> it's well deserved. Um, but I know that you know I think he, he'll he'll kind of come back on the scene relatively soon, and, and is going to be working on some other project and is going to stay I think pretty involved with Medium. Um, he's stepping into the chairman of the board role, and it's yeah. just going to be—he's going to be around. But I think he also wants to give Tony some leeway to do what he thinks is is the right the right next step. I think for for the part of the company that that I I'm involved in, thinking about content, thinking about writers and creators, it feels like a real vote of confidence in that part of the business to have you know the CEO come in, who's kind of one of the top one of the top creators in our creator community. So. It's been, uh, it, you know, it was a weird time to be on vacation, uh, <laughs> for sure. Um, and that's just somehow, sometimes how the timing uh, of these things works out. Um, but I think, you know, I'm excited for, for Tony's first official day tomorrow and, and getting down to work. He, he's written a, a post on Medium where he said he's coming in as the chief exec. And he ends it. He's listening. People should tell him what they think and what mm. they want. What if you have one thing that you're going to go in on uh, the first time you see him in the office and say, "Okay, here's what we need to do." What would it be? What would you want to? What's your aspiration for his kind of leadership? Um, that's a great question. I think for me, I think the trickiest thing about being a creator on Medium right now is, and I've I've worked, I've worked with a lot of. Uh, worked with a lot of creators sort of in different stages of their careers, people who are trying to get started on Medium, people who are very well established and have been writing on the platform for years. And the thing that has been trickiest, I think, is understanding how to be how to be successful in the sense of getting audience repeatedly over over time. Um, and that's the thing I think we really have to to fix. The the feedback, there's something that's slightly broken about the feedback loop on Medium. Um, and I think, you know, from previous experience, other platforms, usually the dynamics, even if they are difficult, 
are fairly clear. Um, at, at BuzzFeed, we spent a lot of time focused on Facebook and figuring out how to get people to share things on Facebook. And, and as that platform developed, the dynamics of how to do that became clearer and clearer. And you know, now in retrospect, unfortunately, they, th- those dynamics have been sort of weaponized <laughs> in a really terrible way. But, you know, at the time we were like, oh, how can we, you know, make things that pe- make people feel good about humanity or are cute or are funny and they want to share them uh, because they reveal something about the person who's sharing them. I think on Medium, um, it's harder to understand how to, how to have, like the building blocks you need to put in place to kind of grow over time. We, we can help people grow as writers and help their, their work improve. Um, we can, you know, give them the tools they need to understand search and how to use that effectively on Medium or to help grow their followership. But because of the way that the platform works currently, that doesn't always result in their audience having some, you know, incremental, stable, and sort of predictable growth. And that's the thing I think we need to provide for for folks. Because um, otherwise, you get into this loop where you're writing and you're not seeing, I don't know, you're not seeing your audience grow. And that is such yeah. a big part of this this line of work. So that'd probably be my my number one. That and um, some offsites for the whole team. I think we're, <laughs> we're still working, as, as many people are, I think we're still working through what it means to be a fully remote, fully distributed team. Um, and I'd, I'd love to see people in person more often. We're going to do some meetups this week. I'm actually going to see Tony and the team in New York uh, next uh, on Thursday of this week, which is really exciting. But I'm, I'm hoping we do some more in-person stuff soon. Uh, we ask all our guests one last question. What piece of media would you recommend to our listeners? I am um, a big fan of it's a Substack newsletter so I hope I don't get in trouble with my medium colleagues for, for recommending it um, and it's a it's a it's a former colleague of mine um, but the art of noticing uh, by Rob right. Walker I, I love Rob's work um, he's just a really interesting thoughtful writer and it's one of the newsletters that I you know that I always open when it shows up in my inbox and like many people I have way too many newsletters yeah, into yeah. my inbox but it's just often about um, you know, sort of the, the little things in life that help you, that help spur creativity, I think is maybe one way of, of thinking about it. But it's just a lot of, he just always has something in there that changes the way that I think about my work or relationships or just being a human being. <laughs> um, and it, I find it, it just always a, a delight. So that's a strong, a strong recommend. But until September, we shall be taking a little break. We'll be thinking about you, but there's loads and loads of stuff on the website. You can go back if you miss us. You can go back and listen to all of the episodes before. But until then, when we'll be back with a brand new season of all the news and the views from the media world. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your summer. <laughs>